Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Ian McEwan is very good at showing the sort of damage that human beings can suffer uh, in, in various ways. His books have terrific artistry. They're written in a beautiful, terse, precise um, prose. Um, at the same time, they're very interested in, in science, technology, um, mathematics. Um, the books, I think, that most of all are concerned with all the different ways in which human beings, especially children, um, can, be, can be damaged, can be injured, and the after-effects of that. A lot of his fiction, I would feel, is fiction of, of aftermath, of the results of, of some kind of damage. But set against that, um, they pay a lot of attention to uh, relationships and the way in which these can um, energize or deplete people. All these themes um, are very compellingly and powerfully present um, in his forthcoming novel, Enduring Love, and it, it's from, which is coming out sometime in September. And it's from that novel that we're now going to uh, hear a reading. So, Ian, please. Thank you. Can you hear me? Is it coming through? No. Yeah? The narrator of this novel, uh, one Joe Rose, uh, a failed scientist, finds himself in a very difficult position. He's under a lot of pressure from a particular source of danger. Uh, his, the woman he lives with has given up on him, thinks he's going crazy. And he's just come back from the police station and the police can offer him no particular help. So he's decided to take matters into his own hands. He comes back to his apartment in London uh, late at night. I've always kept two address books. The pocket-sized hardcover notebook is the one I use daily, and it's also the one I travel with. Two or thri three times now in the past 20 years, I've left it in hotel rooms or once in a phone box in Hamburg and have had to replace it. The other is a scuffed, full-scap-sized ledger book, which I've had since my early 20s, and which never leaves my study. Obviously, it serves as a backup or reservoir should I lose the little book. But over the years, it has matured into a personal and social history. It tracks the blossoming complexity of the phone numbers themselves. The three-letter London codes of the earliest entries have an Edwardian quaintness. Abandoned addresses track the restlessness or social rise of many friends. There are names that would be pointless to transcribe. People die or move out of my life or fall out with me or lose their identity altogether. There are dozens of names that mean nothing at all to me now. I turned on the lamp by the chaise long and settled there with the grapper and the ledger book open at the first page and began to turn the overwritten pages, searching the palimpsests in the hope of finding a criminal connection. Perhaps I had, after all, led a narrow life, for I knew no one bad, no one bad in an organized way. Under H, I found an acquaintance who sold dodgy second-hand cars. He had died of cancer. Under K, an old school friend who tended to depression and who had worked in a casino for a stretch. He sank from sight into a rancorous marriage, and it was his psychiatrist's wife who arranged his electric shock treatment 
Then they settled in Belgium. I went on turning the friends, half friends, quarter friends, and strangers of a lifetime. Most of them perfectly pleasant. One or two liars, perhaps, and a sloth, a boaster, and a self-deluder. But no one with a grip on illegality. No one functionally illicit. Here by the ends was an English rose I knew back in the autumn of 1968 when we had shared a sleeping bag in Kabul and Mazari Sharif. Back in England a few years later, she had interested herself in systematic shoplifting. Now she was a headmistress in Cheltenham. No tenacity. Also born under the sign of N was John Nolan, convicted 20 years ago of murder. At a drunken party, he had thrown a cat from a second floor balcony, skewering it on a park railing. He was righteously prosecuted by the RSPCA and fined 50 pounds. But still, he kept his job with the Inland Revenue. This doomsday book of human exchange and fleeting possession, which I had been extending and revising for more than a quarter of a century, told one particular story of modern badness. The cast was too finely sifted, too entwined with the slants and slates of character defect to have appealed to the criminal justice system. The alphabet of my society described a limited degree of failure and a fair amount of success. And all of it occurred within a narrow band of education and money. Not great wealth, mostly, but reasonable sufficiency. There was simply no need to take other people's cash. Perhaps middle-class crime is mostly in the head or in and around the bed. Battery, assault, abduction, rape, and murder were dourly fantasized when appropriate. But it's something less than morals, more like taste, politesse, that holds us back. Clarissa had taught me Stendhal's remark, le mauvais goût mène au crime. Disappointment rising, I continued to rifle my doomsday, ignoring jolts of curiosity or the vague guilt prompted by certain names, until I entered at last the scrub desert of the final reaches, the U, V, X, Y, and Z, that aridly encompass the oasis of last chances, the W. Sheltering here among the bucolic woods, wheat fields, waters, and warrens, written in faint spidery pencil, not of my own hand, was the name of Johnny B. Well. No criminal in my book, but in my mind, as extensively connected as a neuron. His name was John Well, the B having been borrowed by him or for him from Chuck Berry's kid hero who played the guitar like ringing a bell. As I remembered it, nothing ever came as easily to our Johnny as he roamed the public transport, by public transport, the suburbs of North and South London, bringing marijuana and hashish to the apartments of those too fastidious to descend a street level. By any definition, he was a drug dealer. But the term was too harsh, too opprobrious, for Johnny B. Well was cast more in the type of a shopkeeper, the earnestly committed purveyor of fine wines, or the busy proprietor of a delicatessen. He was careful with his prices, dealt only in the highest quality, and knew about his product to the point of tedium. He was also honest to the same degree, fussy and exact when he counted out the fibres and the change, showily punctilious when he returned the float on an unsuccessful deal. He was harmless and discreet, and acceptable everywhere, on his endless bleary rounds, for all fresh sales were sealed or preceded by a smoke. He might drift from tea with a consultant ophthalmologist to a bath at the home of a barrister friend, supper in a rock star's menage, and on down to an overnight bed in a nest of nurses. He had his own place too, a plumbed-in broom cupboard in Streatham. One evening, 
Johnny opened the door to four grinning Jimmy Carter masks. It was as long ago as that. And in each pair of hands, a crowbar. They didn't speak and they didn't touch him. They shouldered past and wrecked his flat. It must have taken all of five seconds. And then they left. Organized crime was closing down the hippies. It was an early case of market rationalization. Hitherto, important distribution had been the province of venture capitalists, lone Dharma bums staking all on a bulging, fragrant backpack. The suits and crowbars streamlined and democratized, narrowing the product to a third-grade Pakistani hashish and pushing out into pubs, football terraces, and prisons. For a few months, it looked as though Johnny B. Well was going to have to find another job until he was offered protection by the very outfit that had wrecked his home, a small basic wage and commission on sales. And this was the time he'd been obliged to extend the range of his contacts and why I thought he might be able to help me now. An ambitious bunch of lads who occupied a chambre separée in the rear of the dog at Tulse Hill became his employers. They had many friends, and they sent Johnny on many errands. The thugs took him for the honest shopkeeper he was, and he moved among them, unmocked and unscathed. At the same time, he managed to keep open for his old, exacting clientele his line in connoisseur produce, stitched leaf cornets from Nigeria, woven sticks from Natal and Thailand, new seedless varieties from Orange County, weightless golden sheets from the Lebanon. And under the new regime, a typical dreamy day might require a lunchtime experiment in lager with the modernizers, an afternoon tea with the silks who sent them down. It was a lonely life, and hard, a lot harder than ringing a bell. And Johnny B. Well never got rich. He was too earnest, too honest, too stoned. He never took taxis. What other dealer in the world would wait 35 minutes for a bus in his trodden-out shoes? He kept simple, heady faith in himself as a philanthropist, convinced that resin or fruity flowering leaves, ignited and inhaled, were steadily easing humankind into a good mood, and that public and private battles would cease as sweet tempers prevailed and souls opened to the light. Meanwhile, as the 1980s got cracking, the suits and crowbars, along with the barristers, consultants, and rock stars, concentrated on the money. In my study, the circle of light in which I sat appeared to have brightened and shrunk about me. The grapper had been drained, though I did not remember finishing it. I stared at Johnny's spidery name in the seven digits beside it. Who better to help me? Why hadn't I thought of him before? Why hadn't I thought of him instantly? The answer was but I had not seen him in 11 years. Like many before me, I had come to the slow acknowledgement that the mind-altering substance of choice in a pressured, successful middle life is alcohol. Licit, social, with one's mild addiction easily concealed among everyone else's, and in all its infinite, ingenious manifestations, so colorful, so tasty. The drink in your hand triumphs by its very form. Its liquidity, is at one with the everyday, with milk, tea, coffee, with water, and therefore with life itself. Drinking is natural, whereas inhaling a smoldering vegetable is at some remove from breathing, as is the ingestion of pills from eating, and there's no penetration in nature that resembles that of the needle, except an insect's sting. A single malt and spring water, a cool glass of Chablis, may improve your outlook by only a modest degree, but will leave unruffled the glassy continuum of your selfhood. Of course, there's drunkenness to consider. It's boorishness, vomiting and violence, and then craven addiction, physical and mental dereliction, and degrading, agonizing death. 
But these are the consequences of simple abuse, which flows as surely as claret from a bottle out of human weakness, defect of character. You can hardly blame the substance. Even chocolate biscuits have their victims. And I have one elderly friend who has led a fulfilling and useful life on 30 years' supply of pure heroin. I stood in the semi-dark of the hallway and listened, only the creak and click of contracting wood and metal and, deep in the pipework, the trickle of retreating waters. From the kitchen, the susurration of the refrigerator and beyond the soothing rumble of the nighttime city. Back in my study, I sat with the phone in my lap, considering the moment, this turning point. I was about to step outside the illuminated envelope of fear and meticulous daydreaming into a hard-edged world of consequences. I knew that one action, one event, would entail another until the train was beyond my control, and that if I had doubts, this was the moment to withdraw. Johnny picked up on the fourth ring, and I said my name. It took him less than a second. Joe, Joe Rose, how are you doing? Well, I need some help. Oh, yeah? I got some really interesting... No, Johnny, not that. I need your help. I need a gun. The next morning, I drove Johnny out to a house on the North Downs. In my back pocket was a 750-pound wad, mostly in 20s. 50s, apparently, were unacceptable. As we crawled through the choking dullness of tooting, he was still messing with the electric seat controls and muttering to himself as he pressed the switches of the map light and the trip computer, So you've done all right. Yeah, I always knew you'd be okay. From a near horizontal position, he gave me a lesson in gun etiquette. It's like in banks. You never say money. Or in funeral parlors, no one says dead. With guns, no one ever says gun. Only pricks who watch TV say shooter or peace. If you can, you avoid naming it at all. Otherwise, it's the item, or the wherewithal, or the necessary. I said, they'll provide the bullets. Yeah, yeah, but the word is rounds. And someone will show me how it works. Christ, no, that wouldn't be cool. You can take it out to the woods and work it out for yourself. They hand it over, you put it in your pocket. Johnny brought himself into a sitting position. You sure you should be walking around with a gun? I said nothing. I was paying Johnny well for his help, not explaining the background was protection for us both. We were still stuck in the traffic. On the radio, the jazz had been dishonestly succeeded by a program of atonal music, an earnest whooping and banging that was getting on my nerves. I turned it off and said, tell me more about these people. I already knew they were ex-hippies who had made it rich in coke. They had gone legal in the mid-80s and dealt in property. Now things were not so well, which was why they were happy to sell me a gun for an inflated price. Relative to the scene, Johnny said, these people are intellectuals. Meaning what? They've got books all over the walls. They like to talk about the big questions. They think they're Bertrand Russell or something. You'll probably hate them. I already did. By the time we reached the motorway, Johnny was horizontal again and asleep. He wasn't usually up before noon. The road was quiet and straight, and I had time to take a look at him. He still wore his moustache American frontier style, with the hairs now whitened at the ends, curling over his upper lip almost into his mouth. Was it flinty manhood women tasted, kissing a setup like that? Or yesterday's vindaloo? Thirty-five years of grinning and squinting through the smoke had drawn crow's feet halfway to his ears. From his nostrils to the corners of his mouth, the smile lines ran deep with disappointment. 
I knew that apart from the shifting clientele and a new girlfriend, not much had changed for Johnny. But the marginal life was no longer original, a shortage of desirable possessions, no longer a kind of lightness. And here came the universal message from the bones and sinews. The writing was on the skin. It was in the mirror. Johnny kept going in his trodden-out shoes, living like a student, like a charity worker, worrying that this newfangled Amsterdam skunk was too strong and bad for the heart. A shift in key of the road surface rumble brought Johnny awake as we left the motorway. Still flat on his back, he fished a thin joint from his top pocket and lit up. Two lungfuls later, he pressed the seat control and came looming and fuming into my field of vision with a whir. He didn't pass it. This was a private thing, the first of the day, the one he took with his tea and toast. He inhaled and spoke at the top of his breath in the old style. What a saint. Take a left, follow the signs to Abinger. Soon we were dropping down past twisted boughs and trunks through gloomy tunnels of greenery on a high-banked single-track road. I put on the headlights. We pulled into passing places to edge round the oncoming traffic. There was much grim-faced smiling and nodding among us car owners, pretending to be untouched by the insult of narrow spaces. We were deep in a countryside which was itself deep in a suburb. Every two or three hundred yards we passed a gateway in twenties brick and ironwork or five barred wooden gates with coach lanterns. There was a sudden clearing in the wood, a confluence of roads, a half-timbered pub, and a hundred cars parked outside, baking their colours in the heat. An empty crisp packet jumped dreamily into the sunshine to touch our windscreen. Two Alsatian dogs were staring into the ground. Then we were back in the tunnel and the smoke was thick in the car. It's good to get out of the city, Johnny said. I lowered my window. I thought I might be passively stoned. The wad was pressing hard into my buttocks, and everything looked too emphatic as though invisibly italicized. Perhaps it was fear. Ten minutes later, we turned down a rutted driveway whose crumbling asphalt was pierced by weeds. It's amazing how life does that, Johnny said. You know, just push through anyway. This was a big question, surely a rehearsal for the company we were about to keep. I would have taken a shot at an answer to steady my nerve, but just then we came into view of an ugly mock Tudor house and the words died in my throat. The curving driveway brought us to a double garage built of cement blocks and painted an unevenly fainted, faded purple. Its rusting up and over door was padlocked, in, was padlocked. In front, poking through the long grass and the nettles, were the skeletons and entrails of half a dozen motorbikes. It looked to me like a place where crimes could be safely committed. Running from an iron ring in the garage wall was a long chain with no dog on the end of it. This is where we stopped and got out. The nettles went right up to the Georgian front door. From the house came the sound of a bass guitar, a three-note figure fumblingly repeated. So uh, where are the intellectuals? Johnny winced and made a downward pressing movement with his hands as though to stuff my words back into a bottle. He spoke in a near whisper as we approached the door. I'll give you some advice you might be grateful for. Don't make fun of these people. They haven't had your advantages, and they're uh, not too stable. You should have said, let's go. I pulled at Johnny's sleeve, but with his free hand, he was ringing the bell. It's cool, he said, just watch your step. I took a pace back and had half turned away, thinking I might walk off down the drive when the door snapped open and habitual politeness constrained me. A powerful odor of burnt food and ammonia rolled or blared out of the house, momentarily silhouetting the figure who stood in the doorway. Johnny, be well, the man said. He had a shaved head and a small wax mustache dyed with henna. What are you doing here? I phoned last night, remember? Yeah, right. We said Saturday. It is Saturday, Steve. 
uh-uh, it's Friday, Johnny. Both men looked to me. I'd been reading all morning. The newspapers were in my car all over the back seat. I said, actually, it's Sunday. <laughs> Johnny shook his head. He looked betrayed. Steve was staring at me with loathing. I guessed it wasn't his two lost days. It was my actually. He was right. It didn't sound too good here, but I met his look full on. He spat something white into the nettles and said, you're the guy who wants to buy a gun and some bullets. <laughs> Johnny had located an object of interest in the sky. He said, you inviting us in or what? Steve hesitated. If it's Sunday, we've got people coming to lunch. Yeah, us. That was yesterday, Johnny. We laughed with effort. Steve stood aside so we could step into his stinking hall. When the front door closed, we were in virtual darkness. By way of explanation, Steve said, we're making toast and the dogs crapped all over the kitchen floor. We followed Steve's outline deeper into the house. Somehow, the news about the dogs made the gun seem pricey at 7.50. We emerged into a large kitchen. A blue stratum of bread smoke hung at shoulder height, illuminated by French windows at the far end. A man in dungarees and gumboots was mopping the floor with undiluted bleach from a zinc bucket. He called out Johnny's name and nodded at me. There was no sign of a dog. At the stove was a woman stirring a pot. Her hair was combed straight and grew to her waist. She came towards us with a slow floating movement, and I thought I recognised her type. In England, hippiedom had been largely a boy's affair, and a certain kind of quiet girl sat cross-legged at the edges, got stoned and brought the tea. And then, just as the Great War emptied the stately homes of servants, so these girls disappeared overnight at the first trump from the women's movement. Suddenly they were nowhere to be found, but Daisy had stayed on. She came over and told me her name. Of course, she knew Johnny and said his name as she touched his arm. I guessed her to be about 50. The long straight hair was a last rope to the bollard of her youth. Failure had written in lines on Johnny's face, but with Daisy, it was all in the downward curve of her mouth. Lately, I've noticed these mouths in some women of my age. A lifetime of putting out, as they saw it, and getting nothing back. The men were bastards, the social contract unjust, and biology itself an affliction. The weight of all disappointment bent and locked these mouths into their downturn, a cupid bow of loss. At a glance, it looked like disapproval, but the mouths told a deeper tale of regret, though their owners never guessed what was being said about them. I told Daisy my name. She kept her hand on Johnny's arm, but she spoke to me. We're having a late breakfast. We've had to start again. Minutes later, we were sitting round the long kitchen table, each with a bowl of porridge and a slab of cold toast. Right across from me was the floor mopper, whose name was Zan. His huge forearms were hairless and meaty, and I felt he didn't like the look of me. When Steve sat down at the head of the table, he pressed his palms together, raised his head and closed his eyes. At the same time, he inhaled deeply through his nose. Far back in some nasal cave, Chance had fashioned out of mucus two-note panpipes, and we were forced to listen. He held his breath for many uncomfortable seconds, then released it at length. This was controlled breathing, or a meditation, or a prayer of thanksgiving. It was impossible not to look at his moustache. It couldn't have been less like Johnny's. It was dyed a fierce burnt orange and ramrod straight, waxed to prissy Prussian point. I brought a hand to my face to conceal a smile. I felt weightless and shivery. The shock of yesterday's shooting, this plan of reckless acquisition, the background fear, all combined to make me feel that I wasn't really here, and I worried that I might do or say something stupid. My stomach kept 
plunging, and I felt skittish and giggly, feelings intensified by my sense of being trapped at this table. It must have been the passive smoking I'd done in the car. I could not stop the similes accumulating around Steve's moustache. Two rusty nails hammered outwards from his gums, the pointy mast of a schooner I built as a kid. Something to hang tea towels on. Don't make fun of these people, they're not too stable. As soon as I remembered Johnny's warning, as soon as it occurred to me that I must not laugh, I knew I was lost. The first minor explosion of breath through my nose I disguised as a reverse sniff. For cover, I lifted my porridge spoon, but no one was eating yet, no one was talking. We were waiting for Steve. When his lungs were filled to burst, he lowered his shaved head and exhaled, and the moustache tips quivered with rodent eagerness. From where I sat, human meaning appeared to be deserting the sinking ship of his face, and dancing in and out of my spiral of anxiety and hilarity was a train of yet more unbidden images from childhood. I tried to turn them away, but the evocative power of the ludicrous moustache swept all before it. A Victorian weightlifter on a biscuit tin lid, the bolt, the bolt in the neck of Frankenstein's monster, a novelty alarm clock with a painted face telling a quarter to three, the dormouse at the Mad Hatter's tea party, ratty in a school production of Toad of Toad Hall. And this was the man who was selling me a gun. There was nothing I could do. The spoon in my hand was shaking. I put it down carefully and clenched my jaw and felt the sweat pricking my upper lip. I was beginning to rock. I was right in the line of Zan's suspicious scrutiny. The squeaking noise was my chair. The muffled clucking sound was me. So much air advocated my lungs, I knew the intake was going to be a noisy affair. <laughs> but my choices had narrowed now to embarrassment or death. Time slowed as I yielded to the inevitable. I span in my chair, sank my face in my hands, and made a screeching inhalation. As my lungs filled, I knew there was a lot more laughter to come. I hid it behind a yodeling, shouting sneeze. Now I was on my feet, and so was everyone else. Someone's chair hit the floor with a snap. It's the bleach, I heard Johnny say. He was a true friend. I had my story. But stumbling through the commotion, I had yet to defeat the image of Steve's moustache. I snorted and coughed my way across the room, half blinded by tears, towards the French windows that seemed to billow open at my approach and stumbled down some wooden steps onto a lawn of baked earth and dandelions. Watched by them all, I turned my back to the house and spat and breathed deeply. When I was calm at last, I straightened and saw right in front of me tied to a rusting bed frame by a length of electric flex, a dog, presumably the one that had fouled the kitchen floor. It scrambled to its feet and cocked its head at me and gave the most tentative apologetic half-swipe with its tail. What other animal, apart from ourselves and other primates, is capable of experiencing in duration the emotion of abject shame? The dog looked at me, and I looked at the dog, and it seemed to want to engage me in some form of cross-species complicity but I wasn't going to be drawn. I turned and strode towards the house, calling, sorry, ammonia, allergy. And the dog, bereft of a generative grammar and the resources of deceit available to me, sank back onto its bare patch of earth to await forgiveness. Soon, we were back round the kitchen table with windows and doors open wide, and the subject was allergies. Zan gave his judgments the ring of fundamental truth by adorning them with, basically, basically, he said, looking at me, your allergy is a form of imbalance. When I said this was unfalsifiable, he looked pleased. I began to think he might not detest me after all. He had the same hostile regard for his porridge as he had for me. 
what I thought was an expression was actually his face at rest. <laughs> I'd been misled by the curl of his upper lip, which some genetic hiatus had boiled into a snarl. Basically, he went on, there has to be a reason for an allergy, and research has shown that in over 70% of cases, the roots, can, the roots can be traced back, basically, to frustrated needs in early childhood. It was a while since I'd heard this device, the percentages snatched from the air, the unprovenanced research, the measurements of the immeasurable. It had a peculiarly boyish ring. I said, well, I'm in the less than 30%. Daisy was on her feet, ladling out more porridge. She spoke in the quiet voice of one who knows the truth but can't be fished to fight for it. There's an overriding planetary aspect with particular reference to Earth signs in the 10th house. At this point, Johnny perked up. He had been tense since we had sat down again, probably worried that I was about to misbehave. He said, no, 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 it was the Industrial Revolution. Like, before 1800, no one had allergies. No one had heard of hay fever. Then we started throwing up all this chemical shit into the air and then into the food and water. People's immune systems started to jack it in. We weren't built to take all this crap. Johnny was warming up when Steve spoke over him. Excuse me, Johnny, but that's really just a tissue of horseshit. The Industrial Revolution gave us a whole state of mind, and that's where we get our illnesses. He turned to me abruptly. What's your opinion? My opinion was that someone should fetch the gun. I said, my thing is definitely a state of mind. When I'm feeling good, ammonia doesn't bother me at all. You are unhappy, Daisy said. She pursed her own unhappy downturned mouth. I can see a lot of dirty yellow in your aura. If the table had been narrower, she might have reached for my hand. It's true, I said. You saw my opening. That's why I'm here. I looked at Steve, and he looked away. There was a silence that tightened as I waited. Johnny was taking this in with that helpless air of his. And I wondered if he had made a mistake bringing me here. The silence was all about who was going to speak first. It was Zan. We're basically, the, we're, basic, we're not basically the sort of people who would have a gun. He trailed away, and it was Daisy who helped him out. In the 12 years we've had it, it's never been fine. Steve spoke quickly, telling her what she must already know. It's been oiled and cleaned regularly, though. And she said to him, also for my benefit, yeah, but not because we were expecting to fire it. There was a confused pause. No one knew where we were. Zan started again. The thing is, we don't approve of this gun. Or any guns, Daisy said. Steve clarified. It's a Stoller 32, made before the factory was sold by the Norwegians back to the Dutch and German conglomerate that developed originally. It's got a carbide twin-action release that... Steve, Zan said patiently, basically... This thing, like, came into our possession in a whole other time when everything was different and crazy, and who knows, we might have needed it. Self-defense, Steve said. We've been talking about this a lot before you came, Daisy said. We don't really like the idea of it being just, like, taken away by someone, and, you know, she couldn't finish this, so I said, are you selling it or not? Zan folded his mighty forearms. It's not like that, and it's not the money. Well, wait a minute, said Steve, that's not true either. Jesus, Zan was a touch irritable. He couldn't hitch his words around his thoughts. It was difficult, and people kept interrupting. His attitude was lining up behind the snarl. Look, he said, there was a time when it was all about money, only the money. You could almost say it was simple. I'm not saying it was wrong, but look what happened. Nothing turned out the way people wanted. You can't think about it on its own. You can't think about anything on its own. 
everything's connected. We know that now. It's been shown. It's a society. It's basically holistic. Steve leaned in towards Daisy and said theatrically behind his hand, what's he on about? Daisy spoke to me. Perhaps she was still thinking about my unhappiness. It's simple. We're not against selling, but we'd like to know what you'd be wanting with a gun. I said, you get the money, I take the gun. Johnny stirred again. The deal he had brokered might be slipping away. Look, Joe has to be discreet, for our sake as well as his. I didn't like the repetition of my name. It could hang in the air of this kitchen for weeks, along with everything else, and get you. But listen, Johnny was touching my arm. You could say something to people, put their minds at rest. They were all looking at me. Through the open French windows, we heard the mongrel whine, a squeezed-out sound it seemed to be trying to suppress. All I could think about was leaving, gun or not. I made a show of looking at my watch and said, I'll tell you in four words and nothing more. Someone wants to kill me. In the silence, everyone, including me, totted up the words. <laughs> so it is self-defense, Zan said with hope in his voice. I shrugged a kind of yes. There was dither in these faces. They wanted the money and they wanted absolution. These coke dealers, these property crooks, impoverished by negative equity and their dim beliefs, were making a stab at being moral, and they wanted me to help them out. I was beginning to feel better, so I was the bad person. Suddenly, I was set free. I took the wad out of my pocket and tossed it on the table. What was the point of bargaining? I said, why don't you count it? No one moved at first. Then there was a flash, and Steve's hand got there just ahead of Zan's. Daisy stared hard. It looked serious. Perhaps they were living on toast and porridge. Steve counted the notes in bank clerk style at high speed, and when he was done, he put them in his pocket and said to me, right, so now you can fuck off, Joe. To keep face, I included myself in the nervous laughter. Then I noticed that Zan wasn't laughing. He sat waiting, his arms folded, his snarl giving nothing away. In his right forearm, a muscle, it was one I didn't have myself, twitched rhythmically to an unseen movement of his hand. When the laughter died, he spoke up but not in the voice that had made the case for hooligan. It was pitched higher, and it was husky, and his tongue clicked dryly against the roof of his mouth. He was still, but I could see the turmoil beneath the skin, in the pulse at the base of his throat. That was when my own blood began to run a little harder. Zan said, Steve, put the money back on the table and get the gun. Steve was getting to his feet, holding Zan's stare all the while. Fine, he said quietly, and began to cross the room. Zan was out of his chair. That money isn't going in the tin box. Without turning, Steve replied with equal certainty, I'm owed. And he continued on his way. The nearest object to Zan was his empty porridge bowl. He seized it between thumb and forefinger and skimmed it hard, frisbee fashion, with left hand extended and splayed for balance. It missed Steve's neck by an inch and shattered on the door frame. No, Daisy shouted. There was something of the weary, impatient mother in this call. Then she walked out of the room without a word. We saw her retreating back and her hair swinging about her waist. She was gone, and we heard her footsteps on the stairs. Johnny looked at me. I knew what he was thinking. Now the responsibility for the fight was all ours. In fact, it was all mine, for Johnny had sat down to roll himself a cigarette and was shaking his head and sighing at his trembling fingers. Steve had turned and was coming back to the kitchen table. Zan went towards him and took him by his shirt front and tried to push him against the wall. Don't start this, he said breathily. Put it on the table. But Steve was not so easy to push. 
His body was tight and hard and he looked cruel. The two men leaned into each other in the centre of the room. Their biggest effort, it seemed, was to breathe. They were so close, they hovered between their faces a gestalt candlestick. Steve said quickly, The household owes me, you both owe me, now get your fucking hand off. But he did not wait for compliance. His left hand flew at Zan's throat and gripped. Zan swung back his free arm in a wide arc, then whiplashed his open hand against Steve's face. The crack of the blow sounded like a burst balloon, and the force of it thrust the men apart. For an instant they froze, then they charged and went into a clinch. The four-legged beast swayed and edged sideways across the kitchen floor, back towards the table. Johnny and I heard only the bottled grunts. Heads down, eyes closed, lips stretched across their teeth. They groped and clambered and wound over each other like lovers. Something had to give. Zan got his hand under Steve's chin and began to force back his head. No neck muscle could be a match for that hideous impacted arm, but still it was a mighty trembling effort because Steve had hooked a thumb into Zan's nostril and was groping for his eyes, and Zan, forced to lean back, was at full stretch. Steve's head was going back, and Zan's next move was to slip a headlock on him, right arm round Steve's neck, left hand pulling on his own wrist to tighten the squeeze. I started towards them. Steve was going slowly to his knees. He was moaning, and his hands were flailing, then beating weakly against Zan's legs. I tapped Zan's face with the back of my hand and crouched down to speak in his ear. You're going to kill him. Is that what you want? Keep out of this. It's been coming a long time. I tried pulling on his ear to get him to turn and look at me. If he dies, you'll be inside for the rest of your life. Small fucking Christ. Johnny, I shouted, you've got to help. I saw Daisy come back in the room. She held a shoebox in two hands, and her expression was of weariness. Her downturned mouth asked us to see what she had to put up with, the men in her life struggling for the mechanical advantage for the leverage that would permit one to break the other's neck. Take it, she said, whispering. Take it, take it. I got to my feet and took the box from Daisy. It was heavy, and I needed two hands to support the flimsy cardboard. Steve moaned again, and I looked at Johnny. He made a pleading look and jerked his head towards the door. That's right, Daisy said firmly. Better go. The exhaustion in her manner made me wonder if this was not some kind of domestic ritual or over-rehearsed prelude to a complicated sexual alliance. On the other hand, I thought we ought to be saving Steve's life. Johnny pulled on my sleeve. I went with him a couple of paces across the room. He muttered into my ear, if something happens, I don't want to be a witness. I saw what he meant, so we nodded at Daisy, and with one last glance at Steve's head in the trembling vice of Zan's forearm, we hurried along the dark hallway to the front door. As soon as we were in the car, Johnny pulled out a joint and lit it. It was the last drug I would have wanted just then. I decided to stop at the big pub we had passed, calm down, perhaps drink a scotch. I started the car and drove hard back up the drive. It's funny, you know, Johnny said through the smoke. I've been there other times and we've had these, you know, really interesting discussions. indeed and that's absolutely terrific um, we've got about uh, 10 or 15 minutes now for questions um, I'm sure that um, plenty of people here would like to ask Ian questions I've got one or two I'd like to 
um, ask myself uh, first of all. Um, one of them is that the, the person who's narrating um, that uh, chapter that you just read uh, is, is a scientist. He's a scientific journalist. He popularizes particularly biological ideas. Um, it's very impressive, I think, in the book, the way you bring that out. And um, I just wondered how much research you have to do for um, that sort of material in your book. It's not only in Enduring Love, it's in other books as well, that you have a lot of scientific material or technological material. Is it something you're already familiar with, or do you work hard for it for a particular book? Well, in retrospect, it, it feels like research. I mean, it looks like research, but at the time, um, it's just the reading you happen to be doing. I mean, you drift into the reading, you don't quite know what you're wanting from it. Um, I was just actually quite straightforwardly interested in the kinds of... Um, well, I, I think revolution is the right word in, in the biological sciences of the last 20 years. Um, great shifts occurring, um, partly in our understanding of ourselves and in evolutionary theories, uh, and the way this is beginning to affect social sciences and, and other subjects. Uh, so I was reading this, not thinking I was researching a book, um, and this reading continued over uh, three or four years. It's only when you start writing on this, it's because you're interested and it, it generates part of the material, then you look back and say, well, that was, that was the research I did. It didn't ever feel like, it's hardly like going to the library to look things up. You know. um, you know, in, in Martin's session this afternoon, he was talking about how the subject sort of chooses you. You drift into it bit by bit. And often, uh, the earliest sign you get of your own subject is the reading you find yourself compelled to do without any clear sense of its direction. I mean, an another um, biological aspect, I suppose, of the passage you've just read out was the, was the aggression, the fight at the end. And as you were reading that, it struck me that um, actually there are quite a lot of you know, pretty ugly and appalling brawls <laughs> in your fiction, I including one where, where, where a man dies. Um, I just wonder, are you very conscious of this, and do you sometimes ponder on the significance of it, that uh, you know, there's a lot of violence in your book, a lot of aggression? Yeah, I, I, I have to say, this particular fight um, probably belongs, in, I think Joe speculates correctly that it has a ritualistic aspect. Yeah. I don't know. Um, what does it mean? Um, one writes partly out of one's sense of fear, part the sense of the worst thing. Um, and I think the, the more peaceful life is, the more one fears violence, uh, which I think is why we're all fascinated by and terrified by the kinds of um, real-life violence that we read and see on television. Uh, I think in... in um, I'm, try I'm trying to think of a violent scene in my book. How violent are they? Uh, well, the scene with the, uh, the French, be, the bullying Frenchman in Black Dog, something like that, I think. Or the fight with Otto, most of all. Yes. In The Innocents. I, th I think, actually, with a, with a fight, two men in a the fight, there, there is just the orchestration of that, which I find, in, in narrative terms, uh, a, a challenge. It's interesting to place and pace uh, a fist fight. Um, I've been particularly interested in in this, there's a scene in Black Dog where a man at a restaurant uh, identifies with a child who's at a table with a couple. I always watch 
um, when I'm alone, especially on journeys, always watch children uh, with their parents. And then now and then, I think we all have this experience, you see a child in the grip of a terrible family situation, being overcorrected or even slapped. But it's usually of a, a kind of overbearing psychological pressure of put down that looks constant. And I'm horrified by that because you see the need and dependency and love that a child owes to its very tormentor. And it's that complexity uh, that draws me. I suppose, I suppose like a lot of people, um, there, was a threat of, there was always a threat of violence in my childhood, um, which only once or twice materialized. But when it did, it was extremely frightening. And I think that uh, that stayed with me, that recurs. But children are very important in your picture, aren't they? And uh, uh, children at risk, really. I mean, uh, enduring love opens with, uh, with a youngster in really appalling danger. Um, again, is that something you're very conscious of, or something sort of at the centre of uh, your imaginative work? Well, actually, the, the, chil the, the children in enduring love. Um, the more important focus is on two children later on uh, who lose their father in a grooming accident. Um, I guess they become the bearers of a kind, I was going to say truth, but that's not quite the word, a kind of emotional, uh, a naked emotional truth, which is the stated love that, that surrounds them. And actually the love of the children, partly for each other, partly for their mother who's bereaved, is one of the enduring loves, as it were, in, in, in the book. Um, yes, I mean, their lives, uh, particularly in, in enduring love, their lives are, are kind of foiled, sort of highly complicated, um, the contusions of, and, and confusions of, uh, of prevented love around uh, the adult lives in the book. Um, are there any questions that anyone would like to ask from the audience? Yeah, thank you. There's a microphone on its way. Several years, yeah. Several years ago, I studied. Um, child in time at A-level, and I was wondering how you felt about your own company of strangers. But I think anything over 50 or 60,000 words, you've got to have a map, and, um, and then hope that along the way, just like any map on a long walk, you know, the, the, the experience itself will generate uh, the surprises and the pleasures. Mm -hmm. Certainly does that. Any, any other questions? Yes, very nervous talking this way. Um, I've read a number of your books and my memory is that they're not, there's not a lot of laughs in them. You know, they're quite serious. And yet when the bit that you read out just now seemed very humorous. Is, is my memory correct? And if so, what's changed for you? And do you have to work at that? Have you had to work uh, Did it sound like I was working? Um, yeah, yeah. In yeah. reading it out, I mean, in, in actually writing it. Yeah. 
Well, I've always found my own writing funnier than some of my most hostile critics. Uh, 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 what can I say? Uh, I think all good writing is funny, and I try to write well. I mean, I, I think, in, in a sense, and by funny, there's a, you know, I don't mean necessarily belly laugh, but when sentences fall right and are put together, there's always behind it a kind of humor. Uh, and maybe that's something to do with a sense of recognition of what seems right. But more generally, uh, well, I, all I can hope to do is look again. I mean, I, I think there's quite a lot of humor, maybe rather dark. But, uh, yeah. Um, what? I'm happy to look at it again. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, the lady over there. Just a comment on what was being said then. That, um, Sorry, could you start again? Sorry. No, it's just a comment on what was being said then that possibly the difference comes with, with reading it out loud, that you can use accents or expressions or uh, things that bring the humour out more than if it's just read on the page. It's true you can guide a response a little more reading. Um, I think there's a temptation. I mean, I, this is only the third time I've read from this book. Uh, and I'm aware of the next six months I'm going to be on the road with it and I, mean, I, I still enjoy it uh, I still en I'm still enjoying Enduring Love in a few months time I'm going to loathe it um, and be tired of it, tired of talking about it tired of reading it um, tired of maybe just bored uh, there's a temptation perhaps to choose lighter passages or more humorous passages because uh, it's partly self-protective, perhaps. Perhaps it's easier to get an instant um, check on whether it's working because uh, a laugh, it, you know, has a sound attached to it. Whereas you, know, you could read, if I read a, a more intense, less humorous passage, I just wouldn't know how it was going down. So. It's part of my uh, groping my way around this book, finding what, what makes a reading. I mean, I, I've read the first chapter. I know that can work. Um, and I've read this for the second time, and I'm still trying to sort of quarry readings out of it. It's quite a plotted book, and it gets difficult to uh, find the reading other than the first chapter. Uh, and yet, you need to find more than the first chapter, or else you drive yourself crazy. Unless you're an actor and you expect to you know, speak the same words every night, I don't. So there's, there's something of the, the self-protection and the exploratory about this for me. Uh, any more questions? <coughs> yes, turn it over. Um, you, um, you mentioned about the pleasure you get from writing, but um, where, where do the demands of the book trade sort of fit in with this? I mean, and is this, are the pressures of, of you know, uh, publishers, negotiations with publishers, increasing your readership? How does that sort of, does that encroach at all upon your own private world of writing? Um, not really, no, because once publishers, you know, they leave you alone when you're writing a book, no one bothers you. 
Um, and what you can say to yourself, especially when a book is coming to an end and you think it's going all right, is you'll never get as much fun from this as you're getting now. You know, this is the good bit. Um, we're all obliged. It's, it's a professional demand, unless you're Salinger or Pynchon. We're all sort of... We have to go out on the road a bit. It's something of the tragedy of the commons in reverse. We have to do it because everyone else is doing it. If you don't do it, then you, know, um, you just you go under. Um, and that's why I think increasingly the moment when it's still all yours or you know, you've maybe just shared it with one other person, when it's still typescript or longhand, uh, there's no beating that pleasure of a good day. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm making it sound maybe perhaps too ideal. There are also times when you get stuck and you go crazy and you can't do it, but you can't not do it and you pace around and so on. But because you know that, you know, the, the dreaded business of reviews and, you know, going out on the stomp for it, never going to be quite as much fun as um, the times when you're adding to it each day. And you know, you know, when you find yourself on an airplane flying to, you know, go and give a reading somewhere and you've met too many people in the last three days and you're tired of smiling <coughs> and being polite, uh, you then realize that you are, the, you are the employee of your former self. You know, that former self was having a lot of fun. Now he sent you out on this task to stay in hotels and uh, get hotel sadness. And, um, thank but I have to say, you know, this is still fresh, so I'm not sad now, but I know it's coming. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we need to finish now. The lights are flashing. So thank you very much indeed, Ian. That's really interesting. Thank, thank you. you.